Recovery Elevator, episode 21. In a big way, I feel like drinking affected my relationships just in the sense that that's how I made relationships. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app on my iPhone, I have been sober for 10 months and five days, which is awesome. On today's podcast, I'm going to discuss 10 ways that you can meet new friends in sobriety. Because let's face it, if you really do want to get sober and maintain your sobriety, you're probably going to have to change who you hang out with. Maybe not all your friends, but probably a couple. After that, I've got Simone from South Africa, and she's got eight months of sobriety on the podcast. She's the one that gave me the idea for this topic, because she mentions that a lot of the relationships and friends that she met were formed at a bar, and that was the same way with me too. So thank you, Simone, for the idea for the topic. But before we get any further in today's podcast, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. A reoccurring theme in the Recovery Elevator podcast is you must get outside your comfort zone if you wish to reach sobriety and maintain sobriety. Because sobriety is not located in that circle of comfort. It's a dot far outside of your comfort zone. And these are not small changes you're needing to make in life. Number one, quit drinking. That's monumental. You've probably been drinking for a long time. And drinking, if you're like me, is what made you feel normal. It made my anxiety go away. I could talk to girls. I dreamed up elaborate goals and plans, even ways to accomplish those plans. But when I wake up the next morning, nothing ever got done. So not like quitting drinking was enough. It's one of the first things you want to do. But number two, you're probably going to want to change the group of people you hang out with, or at least add a couple new people to your existing group of friends. Because unfortunately, if the people you hang out with are your drinking buddies, this whole sobriety thing probably isn't going to happen. If you're trying to get sober and you call the buddies who are in your car when you got a DUI, it's probably not the best idea. So you realize you might need to make some new friends. Great. How do you do that? Including elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and grad school. I went to school for over 15 years and I barely made a handful of friends. You're telling me that not only am I going to have to deal with the uncomfortable feelings of being sober, I'm also going to have to meet new friends and have them like me for me? But let me tell you, it is possible. And here are 10 ways that you can make this happen. But go figure, you got to get outside your comfort zone. Number one, this may not seem like a breakthrough, but here it is. Number one, check the contacts in your phone. Believe it or not, that new friend or that new group of friends that you want to hang out with, you probably already have that person's number in your phone. Yeah, Doug from accounting who comes to work on Monday, he's never late, and he's got a cool tan line and great stories to tell people around the water cooler, give him a shot. He might not be such a dork. So with that, sit down and think of the people that you know that really before you just didn't have any interest or desire to spend your time with them because their interests, which weren't getting shit-faced, didn't align with yours. Number two, you can meet your new best friend in a social setting. Am I really going to say this? Like a bar. Yep. I just said it. If you are in a time in your recovery when you can go back to a bar or a restaurant that does have beer, you can meet new friends there. Believe it or not, the majority of people at a bar, they're normal drinkers. They, unlike you, are there to enjoy one or two drinks. They're going to get behind the wheel of their car. They're probably not going to hold one hand over one eye just so they can see straight to make it home. So this whole meeting new friends, it doesn't mean you got to meet new sober friends. You just got to meet new normal drinking friends. Number three. The same way you found out about this podcast, you can find out about really cool meetup groups. There's links to soberactivitiesmeetup.com. 
There's one in Denver that does some pretty cool stuff. It's like age 20 to 50 year olds and they just cruise around their tube, they golf, barbecue, all kinds of stuff. And it's not a non-drinking group. They don't have anything against alcohol. That's just not the focus of the group. It's not like drink beer and play horseshoes, drink beer and go on a hike, drink beer and you get the point. The actual activity takes precedence before drinking. In fact, I don't even think they do drink at these events. Number four, which you probably thought would have been number one, join AA, join a local 12-step program. Before I went to my first AA meeting, sure, I was shameful and I didn't want to go. I was, in the back of my mind, excited, thinking that I was going to meet my new best friend or my new group of friends. Although I have met a lot of really cool people in AA, that's not where I've met the bulk of the people that I hang out with now. And like I said, I don't want to confuse you. You don't have to find purely sober friends. The next one, number five, is very important. Volunteer. Yes, volunteering will also help address the psychological component of alcoholism. Alcoholics, like myself, we are all very selfish. Volunteering, it's pretty hard to be selfish while volunteering because the point of it, you're helping other people. So get out there, find a group, volunteer. And it's gonna be hard not to meet other people while they're volunteering also. Number six, exercise in a group setting. Join a gym. However, a lot of people go to gyms, put in their headphones, and work out by themselves. That's not the point of this exercise, pun intended. The point of this list of 10 ways to meet friends in sobriety is to do things with other people. So in your new gym with your new gym membership, do a spinning class, do a group jazzercise class. Sounds kind of fun, actually. But be in a social setting. There are 5Ks, 10Ks, races, runs, group meetup jogging group. There are a lot of groups that are active and hike, and usually those groups don't attract people who are getting shit-faced the night before. Number seven, take a chance. What I mean by that, do something you normally wouldn't do. I live in a small community in Montana. For this exercise, I'm going to look at my community events calendar and just read them off to you. All right, this is all between the weeks of July 12th to July 25th. And this is in the art, music, and food section. I've got a summer concert series. I've got lunch on the lawn. I've got three, no, four farmer's markets, a harvest garden, music on main. I've got the dog and grog micro brew. Nope, no, nope, not doing that one. I've got the Big Sky Music in the Mountains Festival, the Ennis Farmer's Markets, summer concert series at the library, Red Ants in My Pants Music Festival. What? I've got the Adult Fly Fisher Anglers Camp. There's a group mountain bike race. There's an Old Faithful Golf Scramble, Middle Cottonwood Fun Run, there's a Mountain Enduro Series, Madison Marathon, Running's Lungs Race, the point goes on. If you're trying to tell me there's nothing to do besides drinking, I just demolished your point. There's too much stuff to do. There's no way I can do all those events in sobriety, but I can just take a chance, close my eyes, put my finger on the computer screen, open them, and that's the event I'm going to go to, of course, with my Poodle Ben. Number eight. This is more of a trait rather than an activity, but be patient. It's very important. If you've been sober for 17 days, been to the farmer's market twice, and you don't have a best friend, it's probably going to take some time. Just like it seems the snow will never melt and spring will never come, eventually one day your cell phone will ring or you'll get a text message from that new friend, a new group saying, hey, we're going to take the raft out and go floating this weekend. What are you doing? I say, hey, we're thinking of go checking out the Third Eye Blind reunion tour. You in? It takes a long time, especially because these contacts who are probably already in your phone, they might assimilate you with that drinking crowd. And it's going to take a long time to break their habit of just thinking of you as somebody who drinks and hangs out with a drinking crowd. So be patient. Take your time. 
This is a natural process that takes a long time. Number nine, get active and join a social sports league. When I was in Seattle, there was a great social sports league called Underdog Sports. There's a link to this on the recoveryelevator.com website. Get on a co-ed flag football team. Be careful that it's not a beer league. Sometimes those softball leagues can be beer leagues where you basically just drink a lot of beer in the dugout and occasionally swing a bat. But in some of these new social and sport leagues, they aren't competitive and the focus is all on fun and not winning and not drinking and not partying. Find a league that requires participants to dress up. People who are too worried about drinking beer in the dugout, they're not going to be on a kickball team where everybody's dressed as superheroes. Number 10. This is the last one. And it's very important. You put on the sober event. Therefore, you can control the situation. Controls underlined and in bold because alcoholics, because if you are an alcoholic, you can't control your drinking. In fact, you've got to give up all control. But what I mean by that is you can control the time, the day. We start at 6 p.m. and it's done at 8. You can control who you invite. You can control if there's Pepsi, if there's Mountain Dew, if it's just a tap water party. No thanks. But you get the point. One of them that you probably thought would be on this list was travel. I'm going to say not travel because even though I've met some amazing people while traveling, they don't live in my town. They're on the other side of the globe, or at least a different state. You want to be meeting and bolstering relationships with healthy people in your community. And there are 10 ways that you can do just that. Now, let's hear from our interviewee, Simone. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Simone all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa, to the podcast. How are you, Simone? I'm very well, Paul. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into it. How long have you been sober? I've been sober today uh, for eight months, two weeks, and five days. Congratulations. And talk to me about your elevator. When did you decide that it was time to stop drinking and time to get off that elevator? Uh, well, thanks for asking that, Paul. I, um, ever since I started listening to your podcast, I try to answer that question for myself. And I really struggle with it because uh, even though I try and listen to the similarities and not the differences, I guess... For me, it was never just one day. It was a long stretch of, of time and a lot of reflection that got me to the point. But yeah, for the first half of 2014, I was kind of realizing I needed to slow down. I got very depressed in, in the middle of the year and I uh, went to go visit my family in South Africa. And it was really that vacation that I started to realize I was no longer acting like myself and I was no longer proud of who I was. And I just came to the conclusion that it was there was drinking that was doing this to me. And actually, my mom called me out one day on vacation and asked me very uh, gently if I had if she thought I if I thought I had a drinking problem. Uh, to which I just burst out crying, and I guess that was my answer to that question. So it was about a month after that conversation with my mom that I had my last drink. But it was only about five months after that that I realized I was an alcoholic, and um, I'd been. I guess what we call a dry drunk for those first five months before I found any help and started doing any recovery work. Simone, talk to me about your drinking habits. How much did you drink, the frequency, and, and what was your go-to drink? Yeah, pretty much anything really, but uh, having moved to Korea, I guess in the beginning, my timing that I spent in Korea was uh, I drank a lot of wine by myself uh, during the week and then over the weekends I would go hang out with all of my ex-pet friends and we often drank a lot of beer and soju and 
very big binges over the week. Uh, when eventually I just got tired of all of that and I stuck to whiskey. Uh, eventually I was drinking a bottle of whiskey every two to three nights, uh, whether I was by myself or at a bar. Often my kind of stock standard was about five or six doubles at a bar and I'd be still standing by the end of the night. So yeah, that was about it, um, right up until the end. Now, Simone, it sounds like you got off your elevator at the right time before things really got bad. You know, I'm sure emotionally they were tough. You know, we were depressed in 2014. But talk to me about just how your drinking has affected relationships. And in fact, you said your mom asked you, do you think you have a drinking problem? I mean, so she suspected. How is drinking affecting your relationships professionally and, and, and with your family and friends? You know, professionally, in, in Korea, it wasn't that odd, to be quite honest, because um, it was kind of normal to drink that much in, in that environment. Uh, so, so luckily, by the grace of God or whatever higher power you believe in, I managed to hold down a job for, for the entire time, even through the worst of my drinking days. But the rest of my alcoholics, my alcoholic days, I mean, I didn't realize until I got into a program how much I had destroyed other people um, really on a, on a romantic and a friendship level. I just was quite unkind and um, I isolated a lot and, um, and I'm really lucky that I didn't lose too many friends along the way. Uh, I will say that I ended up, you know, I, I lost a lot of friends that I thought were friends because they were just bar friends. And that was interesting because when I got sober, I kind of expected to have more people around me. And, uh, and the thing is, when you make friends only in bars, and that's your whole network, that's kind of what your friendship revolves around. So in a big way, I feel like drinking affected my relationships just in the sense that that's how I made relationships. And so I've had to kind of figure out a new way to do that. So I'll give listeners a little bit about your background. You're 25, you're from South Africa, you went to South Korea to teach English, and just tell us where you're at right now and when you went over to South Korea, and also talk to us about what it's like to drink in South Korea, what, what that culture's like. So I'm 25, I, I guess I, I finished university in 2011, and uh, I immediately went straight to South Korea to go and teach English. The idea was to teach for a year, as sort of a gap year, before I came and you know started life, and uh, I guess this is what we call the geographical now in uh, in some programs. But yeah, so I moved to Korea, and um, and I stuck it out for a good three and a half years. Um, and you know, kind of like I said a bit earlier, uh, it's kind of a pro professional requirement in Korea to be able to hold your own uh, when it comes to drinking liquor, because all kinds of social events that involve your uh, colleagues. Everything just revolves around liquor, um, you know, and it's kind of rude to, to turn down a drink from your elders and it's rude to say no. Um, and it also is kind of a show of strength if you can hold your own. So professionally, it's, it's kind of all over the place anyway, but also just kind of on an individual level. And it's so easy to come by alcohol in Korea because just every convenience store, every 24-hour convenience store sells everything that you could possibly want for next to nothing. It's like a dollar for a bottle of soju or some really cheap Korean beer and it's there if you want it 24 hours a day and there's like five or six convenience stores in the street. So there's that and then you know also being in an environment where you're around people who don't speak your language for five days of the week, as soon as Friday rolls around you just hit the bars because that's the easiest way to meet the expats. So a lot of my expat relationships were, 
were built in, in bars as well. So yeah, so I spent about three and a half years there, and, and like I said, I got I got sober in October last year, um, and decided to stick it out, stick out the rest of my contract, which ended now in uh, at the end of June, and I just moved back to South Africa to to be with my family and to pursue grad school and and to kind of stabilize my life a little bit. Simone, so if I understand correctly, you teach English and you would have a babalos, which means a hangover in, in South Korea. I can't imagine teaching kids English that don't speak English natively while being hungover. I mean, just tell me about that. How hard was that? There were days when I would wake up sweating whiskey and, uh, and just be standing in front of a crowd of like, often like 40 South Korean 12 year olds who had no idea what was happening inside of me and I was having hot flashes and I was having stabbing pains in my kidneys and, and I just had to be there dancing around like this English speaking monkey like let's play games, this is going to be fun and just feeling like crap on two hours of sleep and, and also knowing that my co-workers were doing exactly the same thing kind of made it a little easier but it was still pretty crazy. I mean, yeah, I definitely didn't feel like the best teacher in the world. You said that it is a sign of strength, professionally, that if you can handle your booze. Simone, I think I'd be a CEO in about two months if I was drinking in, in South Korea because that's the thing. We can handle our booze, but, you know, how hard was it to really overcome that? Because I'm sure socially, you know, with that social stigma, sure thing, you're like, well, I should be able to drink and I should drink with these people. I don't have a choice. I just got to say congratulations for stopping drinking in South Korea with, with months left on your contract. That had to have been tough, right? Yeah, it was pretty tough. You know, actually, I, I got really lucky with my, my school. They were very understanding. So when we went out, um, they, you know, no one ever pressured me to do anything. I worked with a bunch of really, really great people. And I actually got really lucky because I know some people whose, whose employers kind of forced them to stay out until 6 a.m. and get drunk with them. So I, I really hit the jackpot with my employers, and uh, so I, I count my lucky stars with that. But getting sober in general in South Korea, when, when three years of my life and my network had been based in bars, that was really quite tough because I really saw myself as very, very alone. Um, and uh, I just really struggled to kind of to overcome the fear of leaving my house. You know, I, I couldn't go into a convenience store without fearing my own weakness or something, you know. So that was, that was quite difficult, um, but I eventually found, uh, found some good help. Simone, you mentioned the geographical cure. What was that like for you? Because I remember getting on an airplane and thinking, all right, see you later, drinking problems. I'm done with you, but sure enough, they came with. The thing is, like, I don't feel like I left South Africa knowing that I had a drinking problem. But I will say this. I went to Korea for one year, and I came home at the end of that year. And at the end of that year, I stayed, in, I stayed at home in South Africa for a few months and decided I need to go back because I don't have the freedom here to drink like I did there. And I don't have the kind of connections that I had there. You know, being, being an expat is already like kind of an exotic thing and, and you, you get to hang out and feel really special around a bunch of really cool exotic people too. So I got back to South Africa after my first year in Korea and I recognized I wasn't going to be able to live my fabulously alcoholic lifestyle here in the same way that I would in Korea. 
So I, you know, it took me about two months to get back on a plane and, and uh, pursue my my alcoholic drink. So I, yeah, I eventually did move to Korea to continue drinking. And in some ways, I feel like I've moved back home to augment my recovery. And maybe that is kind of a geographical cure, but I feel like it's in more of a positive direction because I know that I have support here. I, I have strong support in people who really love me here. It sounds like you are no foreigner to getting outside of your comfort zone. For one, going to South Korea to live a new life and teach English. And number two, deciding you need to get sober and what's more important, going back to South Africa. How important is it to get outside of your comfort zone if you really want to become sober? It's absolutely the most crucial thing that you have to understand in, in getting sober. Uh, you, you, you really have to give up a lot of, um, of notions that you can hang around the same places and people and do the same things if you're wanting to stay sober. Um, and you'll find quick enough that if you are committed to your sobriety and you do hang around the same people and places and things, those aren't really the people and places and things you want to be around. So there's that and then there's also, it's very uncomfortable doing the emotional legwork involved in, in recovery, you know, that's not a comfortable place to be. Uh, having to face yourself sober and lucid every single day and, and trying to be better every day. Those things are, are in, a, in a big way getting out of your comfort zone as well. So yeah, it's, it's crucial because being comfortable is, is what got us to drink in the first place, right? I mean, we, we drank to escape anxiety um, and that kind of numbed us, so we felt sort of comfortable. So yeah, it's the most crucial thing to, to embrace uh, some kind of difference and some kind of um, shake things up a little bit. Otherwise, it's never really going to happen. Simone, talk to me about the social stigma in both Korea and South Africa regarding alcoholism. For example, in Peru, if you're an alcoholic, you pretty much get shunned. You know, there's a witch doctor that will come in Korea. What was it like if you're an alcoholic in Korea? Do they say, oh, we need to get you help or let's put you in a closet? Well, it's such an interesting question. You know, in South Korea, generally all mental health issues, as far as any Korean is concerned, none of it exists. So, uh, so you'll find uh, any kind of random person on the street. You ask them about alcoholism, and they'll say, "Oh, that's not a thing here. We don't, we don't have that." Um, which is incredibly ironic for for any foreign person that's there, because they're, you know, it's what we would see as alcoholism is very blatant everywhere you look. You know, there's like drunk people pass out in the streets everywhere. So it's really odd that there's a lot of people who don't see it as a problem at all because it's such an, a culturally accepted way of life. But I will say that I was really happy when I did eventually find some help and I eventually found some groups that there were some Native Korean people who were very willing to, to give it a shot, you know, and I think things are changing a little bit. I even had a student once who was about 12 years old and I asked her what she wanted to do and she grew up and she said she wanted to be uh, and a counselor, an addictions counselor when she grew up. And that for me showed me that there's some kind of progressive thinking uh, kind of on the horizon at least. Simone, talk to me about the solution. What are you doing now? What is your plan in sobriety? And how have you made it to eight months, two weeks, and five days? Let us know how you did it. Thanks, Paul. You know, I, I feel really lucky that I eventually found help. You know, my first five months of sobriety, pretty much five months on the dot, I, uh, I white knuckled it the whole way through and uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I just knew that I could not drink and, uh, and, and sometimes I guess that's, you know, that's enough 
for the beginning and I got to five months and I ended up, I feel like I bottomed out actually while I was sober. And that's when, I don't know, I guess my higher power or just my higher reasoning or whatever you want to call it kind of hit me in the face and just said, look for help right now. You need, you can't do this alone. So I did what any kind of normal sane person would do. And I went online and I was like, how can I find help? I eventually found that there are AA groups for, for expats and Koreans in, um, in South Korea. Very few and far between, but they're there. And uh, I mean, long story short, I found myself in an AA meeting, a very small meeting, uh, right in the beginning. And I stuck with them all the way through to when I left. And actually I found through them, we have Skype meetings, or there are Skype meetings available for expats that find themselves in remote areas of the world. Uh, and need help. So, so I know that you guys aren't too affiliated with um, with AA, and and that's okay. But I will say that I found a lot of support through the rooms, and uh, and now I've I've moved back to South Africa, and there's quite a big community here as well. So I do plan on. I went to my first South African AA meeting last night, and I plan on finding a sponsor soon and getting a little more involved in the young people's AA. And uh, yeah, just staying active and listening to podcasts and, you know, doing my step work and reading and just being and speaking to alcoholics every day, you know, just remembering that this is number one on my priority list is staying sober. Talk to me about, you said, feel like I bottomed out while sober. After five months of being sober, you feel like you hit your bottom. That is depressing to hear because I understand it 100%. It's the whole dry drunk thing. Simply quitting drinking is not enough because you're only addressing the physical part of the alcoholism. You're just not drinking. There's a spiritual and emotional part, which it sounds like, you know, after five months, you decided to address those factors. Talk to me about what white knuckling was like. You also said you had addict feelings or addict thinking. Tell, tell me about that. It was really odd. You know, I, when I quit drinking, I hadn't really come to terms with or I guess even had the thought that I was an alcoholic. I knew that alcohol was causing big problems in my life and I knew that I had to quit drinking if I was going to address any of those problems. So I did and um, and the first few months were really great um, in, in some ways, in, in other ways not so great. So I, I eventually just stopped going out altogether. So I isolated myself quite a lot and my life was basically just gym, work, home, gym, eat, TV, sleep, and like rinse, repeat for seven days a week for those five months, basically. I did manage to go on a vacation. I managed to pick up a few hobbies that were, you know, kind of helping me out a little bit, but they were only getting me so far in terms of, of recovery and, and growth. You know, I didn't, I didn't even know to call it recovery at the time. I didn't feel like I was growing at all. And, and I guess I hit one, one day in March, I think, I was... I was just over five months sober and I was so frustrated that I was depressed again. And I really had believed that drinking was causing my depression and that if I stopped drinking, all of my other problems would solve themselves. And I was heartbroken to realize that, you know, like three weeks into quite a harsh depressive episode, I was like, why is this happening to me? I've been healthy, I've been exercising, I've been eating really well, I've been... I've not been drinking, like why am I still feeling this way? And, um, and so the addict thinking came in when I thought that and, I said, and my first thought immediately afterwards was, well if I feel like this while I'm sober, I might as well still drink. 
And luckily I was sober and lucid enough to pick up that thought and be like, hang on a minute, that is not how normal people think. You know, that's an addict thought right there. Because I was, I could hear the thoughts in my mind saying, okay, you feel like shit, you're frustrated, what is the most destructive thing that you can do right now? You know, and I was thinking about, you know, I could go and have a drink or I can go and like binge eat all of the sugar or I could, you know, like go and meet a random stranger and God knows what. But in my head, I could hear myself saying, what is the most destructive thing I can do to make these feelings go away? And that's when I realized that I was an addict and that I needed help because that's not how non-addicts think, right? Listeners, what you just heard Simone say was a value bomb. What it sounds like is everybody has a case of the efforts, and that happens when when you start feeling like crap, right? You said, your addiction basically said, well, we already feel like crap, we might as well just start drinking. But the difference is, it sounds like you're recognizing those thoughts. You're not listening to them in like an unbiased manner saying, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But that's so cool that you probably can hear those thoughts and you see them. You recognize them for what they are, right? I guess but my life had been so rinse repeat at the time that I, I hadn't really been paying attention to much else. And when those thoughts kind of sidelined me, I knew that they weren't natural, they weren't normal, and, and they weren't healthy. You know, I was trying really hard to be a healthy person, and this kind of came out of nowhere. And, and I knew that if I followed through with them, I would be completely defeating the object of this huge, healthy life that I was pursuing. So yeah, I, I, uh, I was lucky that I was lucid enough to hear them, but it was also incredibly weird because I'd been, I've, I'd obviously heard them before when I was drunk and never paid any attention to them. Simone, sometimes these alcoholic thoughts or addict thoughts come in my mind for several minutes at a time. They could be moments, they could be minutes, they could be for a couple hours, and all of a sudden it will hit me. I will come to the realization and I'll be like, wait a second, that's my addiction talking to me, and then I digest it all. But for a while, it masks itself. It talks to me in different ways and different voices. Simone, we have reached a rapid fire round. If you could please answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds. Are you ready? Uh, I think so. Let's do this. Simone, what was your worst memory from drinking? I guess it was waking up just one day on vacation with my family and realizing that I wasn't a good role model to my little brother and I wasn't somebody that my mother could be proud of and just feeling full of shame, really. Uh, yeah, Mauritius, uh, September last year. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Uh, like I said a little earlier, I'm, I'm uh, really looking forward to getting into meetings here and hopefully getting more involved in uh, the young people's AA over here and like I said, just speaking to an alcoholic every day and doing my step work. What is your favorite resource in recovery? I would have to say that the internet, you know, basically all online resources, uh, specifically the Skype online AA meetings and podcasts like yours and blogs. Uh, that address all kinds of recovery-related issues. In regards to sobriety, Simone, what's the best advice you've ever received? It was about five-month mark where I hit my dry drunk <clears throat> bottom. I texted a friend of mine back in South Africa asking for help, and I, I didn't know what to do, and I was very skeptical about AA. And she said, just go to a meeting. Even if you don't like it, you can find sober people to hang out with and start a sober life. And uh, that was really important to me. And one more thing was... A guy from the Skype meeting said to me, it's good to be navigating from a need to be useful rather than a need to be important. 
Last question, Simone. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? I'd have to say that, that it's, it's great to be quitting drinking and, and giving up something big like that, but I find it so much more valuable to start imagining what a great sober life looks like, you know, because it's not that strange. And once you can do that and once you can imagine the sort of potential that your sober life has, then you can really start working towards something like that and it doesn't look that as dreary as it would in the beginning. Simone, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for your podcast. Recovery Elevator, tell me what you want to hear. What are your pain points? What topics would you like me to cover? Unfortunately, there are no shortage of pain points for me in sobriety, but they're a hell of a lot less painful now than they were when I was drinking. Right now, it's just life. The struggles that I'm facing right now are the struggles that normal people face in life. It's not like I can't stop drinking before I have to be at work or something like that. They're normal struggles. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down, You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.